Good morning, Christ Church. How are you all doing this morning? So if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, if you've not already done so. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can reach down, grab one of those out, and open it up to 1 Corinthians 11. There is a table of contents there if you're new to the Bible. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us, and we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would come by your Holy Spirit and that you would open up our hearts and our eyes, and that you would enable us to see you and to hear your voice. And in hearing your voice, would, would you change us, O oh God, and draw us closer to your son, Jesus. Come and meet us, we pray, Father, in your word, and as we also share together at the table in the Lord's Supper. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series looking together at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the first century city of Corinth. And over the last couple weeks, or beginning last week and then into this week, we've been specifically looking at what he says to this church about the Lord's Supper. And so we're spending some time this morning talking together at really the practice that stands at the very heart of the Christian worship gathering. Uh, it's been called by various names. Sometimes it's called the bread and the cup. Other times the Eucharist. The word Eucharist in Greek simply means the Thanksgiving meal, as it were. Sometimes it's called communion. And other times the Lord's Supper. And sometimes we just refer to it as the table. But, you know, Jesus gave us this practice, and it's pretty fascinating because, you know, Jesus, he gave us a lot of words. There are a lot of teachings in the Bible given to us by Jesus, announcement of the kingdom of God and all that it means for the world, ethical teaching that shapes and informs our lives. But Jesus, although he gave us a lot of words, he only gave us two rituals, two practices for us to engage in. And the first, of course, is uh, the practice that begins the Christian life, and that's the practice of baptism. But the other practice Jesus gave us is this one. It's to share together regularly in the Lord's Supper. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We said last week that the first Christians, they heard that command, do this in remembrance of me, and the church did that. And they gathered together on the first day of the week to share together in the Lord's Supper and to speak words of encouragement to each other and to pour over uh, the letters of the apostles and the teachings from the gospels. And this practice of gathering together on the first day of the week around the table and around uh, the words of Christ that occurred in the first century began to spread throughout the Greco-Roman world. And as the church entered into new generations and new times and new places, what marked out Christian gatherings every week when Christians would gather together is that they would gather to share in the Lord's Supper and around the Word of God, to hear Scripture read, to hear Scripture preached and taught. And so Christians have done this for literally hundreds of years. Christians have gathered together around this practice every single week. And so we've asked the question, why? And what does it all mean? 
And a, a question I think that, that's even more pertinent, I think, for us as a church, Christ Church, is why did they do it every single week? And should we do this practice every single week? Some of you, if you were here, what I got here, you know, we were practicing uh, the Lord's Supper once a month, and then we moved from monthly communion to practicing the Lord's Supper every other week. And we've been talking together with the pastors and with the elders, with our ministry team, about uh, perhaps moving to weekly communion and thinking about whether or not that's what uh, the Lord would have us to do as a church. But that really begs the question, why? Because it's easy to enter into this practice and to treat it in sort of a rote, repetitive sort of way, well, this is just what we do when we gather together, and fail to grasp the full meaning and to apprehend the full significance of this practice. And so we're, we're pouring over the, these words that the Apostle Paul wrote in order that our own experience of this practice might go deeper, and in order that we might know why it is that this practice stands at the very heart of Christian worship. Now, we said last week, or, or I guess we could say one of the reasons why the practice of both the bread and the cup and preaching Scripture and reading Scripture stands at the very heart of Christian worship is because it reflects, really, when you look at these two things, both the pulpit, or in our case, the uh, music stand, and the table over here, it reflects on the one hand how God reveals himself to us in the gospel. God comes to us in both speech. Jesus came announcing the kingdom, preaching the kingdom. We, are, we have a book that stands at the very heart of, of, of the Christian faith, the Bible. This is God's revelation to us in word. But God just doesn't speak. God becomes flesh and he dwells among us. He becomes tangible. He becomes touchable. And so too, when we gather for worship, we come to hear God's words, but also to uh, put around in our fingers the tangible and the tasteable elements of the bread and the cup that reflects the incarnation that the word of Christ came among us and he became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's one reason why this practice stands at the heart of Christian worship because it reflects the God we worship and the gospel of the God we worship. But we also said last week that in this practice, coming and, and sharing together in the bread and the cup week after week, we hear an invitation. And we said last week that we hear an invitation first to look back, to look back to the passionate love of God given to us fully and unreservedly for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we look back uh, to bring to memory, to bring into our experience this great event of the past so that it, it, it stands at the center of our own affections and our life in the present. And, but it's not just an invitation to look back. This practice is also an invitation to look forward. Jesus says in the words we heard read that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, by returning again to the table, we are filled with hope for the day when we will share in the great banquet, the great feast in the kingdom of God where there will be no more tears or pain or crying or weeping for the former things have passed away. Behold, Jesus says, I am making everything new. And when we share in this practice, we do so in hope for the day when we will share it in the age to come. 
And Jesus says, so you partake of this in remembrance of me. And we said last week that that word remembrance can also be, we, we actualize in the present the events of the past and our hope for the future. I remember hearing Tim Keller tell a story about a, a young girl who was in her late teens and came and saw him one time when he was a fairly new pastor. And he said she came to him, she was in crisis because she said uh, none of the boys had asked her to the prom. And she was crushed, she was heartbroken, and she was feeling ugly and unwanted and unloved. And so what did Tim Keller do? Well, this pastor sat down and he says, don't you know that God loves you? That the eternal love that called the universe into being became flesh and dwelt among us to bear in his body all of your sin and shame and guilt. And he loves you. And if the love that called the universe into being has been set upon you, then who cares what any pimply-faced boy thinks about you? <laughs> and she said, I, I know all of that, but what does it matter if somebody doesn't ask me to the prom? And we think that's ridiculous, but there's not a person in this room that hasn't had those thoughts going through your head. You know, what, what is it, what is, you know, we kind of think, what, what does it matter? You know, this reality of the events of Christ hasn't changed our lives in the present so that we're shaken, we're taken off balance by things that don't really matter. And so we come back again and again to bring into our experience in the present what God has done. So we are invited to look back, we're invited to look ahead, but we also said last week, and this is kind of where we're going to drill down this morning, we're invited to look around. When you come to the table, you do not come alone. This is not simply a practice we share that is about me and Jesus. It is a practice that reminds me of the entire community of Jesus, because this one bread that we break is shared among the many of us, and the many of us are brought together in one family around the body and the blood of Christ, which was given fully and unreservedly for us. And it was here that the Corinthians had gone off the rails. And so I want to kind of drill down and see what Paul says to them as they went off and they were kind of neglecting the communal, the social dimension of the Lord's Supper. And I dare say that in evangelical churches, especially in America in the 21st century, where we live in a culture that is so highly individualistic, where our own religious expression is often very privatized and personalized, and we don't oftentimes see the social and the communal dimension of the gospel. And that's what the Corinthians are missing. That's what many of us are missing. And so let's see how Paul addresses them. Now, it's going to take some work to kind of get through this text. Uh, there's some strange stuff in this text. I don't know if you heard it read, but Paul talks about some people who were getting sick and some were even dying because they had not properly discerned the body of Christ. What does all of that mean? Well, to get to the understanding, kind of the, the meaning of this text, we need to drill down and kind of walk through it. And we want to walk through it under three headings. Number one, I want us to observe the problem that existed, kind of that they were dealing with. Secondly, the warning or the threat that Paul brings to them in, the, in light of the problem. And then finally, the remedy he proposes. So let's look at it as the problem, the warning, and the remedy. Does that sound good? If it doesn't, I'm sorry, that's all I got today. 
Let's go. Let's, let's look at the problem. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. Clearly, there was a problem because he begins this way. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. If the apostle Paul says that your Christian gatherings are doing more harm than good, you have got issues. And they had issues. Look what it says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Then he says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. He says, this isn't the Lord's Supper. These are your own meals. He says, and one goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? (laughs) Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not commend you. Do you get the problem that Paul is livid about something here? And he is. So what was happening? Well, it says that some people were going home from their gatherings hungry and others were getting drunk. Now, how do we make sense to this? Because, uh, you know, when you come here and we break bread and we give you this little thing right here, I mean, there's not a person in this room that doesn't go home hungry. And, you know, we give you a little thimble of juice, and it's just a thimble, and it's not even fermented. It's non-alcoholic. How are people getting drunk? I mean, what on earth is happening here that created all of the drama? Well, two things you need to understand. First is this. When the church met in the first century, they did not meet in special religious buildings, beautiful, ornate buildings like this one. Rather, they met in homes. And their worship service was not oriented primarily around, you know, kind of this highly structured liturgy with simply singing and prayers and then this little ritualized practice at the end. Rather, their entire gathering was oriented around a meal. And so it was actually more in our minds like a dinner party than it would be a worship service. In fact, one of the early names given to the Christian gatherings, it was called the love feasts which that just sounds like something immoral that was happening in the 60s or something among hippies up in the canyon. But the love feast actually was a term that was used to describe these gatherings. Christians would come together, they'd share in a meal, and they were not alone. In the ancient world, this happened all the time. So religious, political groups would get together, they would share in a meal together, and then there would be a space following the meal called the symposium. And oftentimes in the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish world, following the meal, there would be singing, entertainment. If it was a philosophical gathering, there might be a philosophical lecture or something of this nature. And the Christian gatherings looked something like that. There was a meal, and the meal was followed by a space where there was prayers and singing, and sometimes people would get up and they would read from a letter that was given by the apostles or a section from the gospels. They would discuss, they would encourage each other, exhort one another. If they had a traveling evangelist like Paul, he might get up and speak after dinner all the way into the night until way past midnight, so much so that we saw last week, sometimes people would fall asleep and fall out the window and die. Let that be a warning to you if you're falling asleep. (laughs) Audrey, I'm just kidding. I'm just just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
So are you getting the picture? It's they gather together for a meal, and it's likely the case that they would break the bread at the beginning of their gathering, and they would say, we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken for us. And then they would share together in a feast, and then after the feast, they would probably raise a glass in in memory and in honor of Jesus Christ, his blood that was shed for us. And then they would move into a space where they would pray, and they would sing, and they would speak into each other's lives, and so on and so forth. And this is kind of what typical gatherings looked like in the first century. Second thing to keep in mind is that the city of Corinth was a highly stratified society. It was a culture, it was a place that was obsessed with rank and status. And so if you were in the city of Corinth, you knew exactly what rung you occupied on the social status ladder. And you would constantly be displaying to other people where you sat on that social status ladder. If you were high up, you'd want to display it for everyone to see so that people knew how awesome you were. If you were down low, you would just kind of walk around with low-grade shame and humiliation. And one of the places where they would display their honor if they were elite was at dinner parties. And everything about a dinner party said something about your own status and your own honor in a society. And so where you sat at a table, if you were at the head of the table or at the right hand of the the host, the portions of food you were given, if you were elite and higher rank, you would be given the best, and down lower on the status ladder, you'd be given worse, you would be given worse seats. Remember years ago when I was a kid, uh, my brother and sister and I, we used to play this game uh, called Hello Kitty. And my, my sister developed this game, actually, and she was Hello Kitty, and my brother was Mike, and I was Michael. I know it's not that creative, the names. But we watched, it was the 80s, and we watched a lot of TV. But, um, but in the game, Hello Kitty always got the best, and then Mike got the second best, and then I, who was always Michael, the youngest child in the family, got the worst. And so, for example, if we were serving out cake or, you know, Hello Kitty would get the largest piece of cake, and then Mike would get the second largest, and then Michael would just get scraps, you know, and then, or bowls of ice cream, you know, Hello Kitty would just scoop out her heart's content, and then Mike would get this medium, and then if there was a little bit left, I might scrape it out, and anyway. (laughs) Sometimes I was a young child, I would object to my sister, Kara, why, why does Hello Kitty always get the largest portions? And, I would re- and she would respond, that's just how the game works. And I would say, okay. <laughs> and listen, this was the game they played in Corinth. Those who were elite, who had power, who had, had status, they got the best, the best seats at the table, the best and biggest portions of food, the best place in the house. Now, the houses, they had a dining room. And in the dining room, they would typically, you know, have a U-shape of three couches in there, and sprawled out upon these couches would be space for about nine or 12 of your honored guests who would get all the great food, and then the rest of your guests, you might be able to, if it was a wealthy home, you might be able to host another 30 or 40, but they would need to go out into um, what in the ancient world was called the atrium, from which we get our word atrium. But are you getting the picture? So what is Paul talking about what's happening in Corinth? Well, the broader practices regarding dinner parties in the culture had moved their way into the church. 
And the very issues that were at play in the culture, the game that they played where those who were elite got the best spots and the biggest portions were being played out when they gathered together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, to make matters worse, during this time, almost all the scholars agree that there was a famine going through the Roman world. And because of this famine, there were people that would, I mean, you would, you would literally have day laborers who would be out in the fields, you know, working, picking the strawberries that the affluent and the elite would eat at their dinner tables. They'd be out working for hours and hours and hours, and they would be hungry, and they wouldn't have any means. And, and in this case, they might come to the gathering of the church, the worship service of the church, where they were going to share together in this common meal and then follow with prayers and singing and speaking to each other. And these migrant workers would get there hungry and late. And by the time they get there, there's already a party, a banquet going on in the, in the triclinium, in the inner dining room with all the affluent and elite. And maybe these other people would get some. And then they'd all gather together. And Paul looks at this and he says, this is absolutely absurd. He says, for in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. He says, some of you are happy. You're living it up. You're laying out. You know, you're eating your food. You're having this party. You know, the music's on. You know, the wine's flowing. And then the rest of the Christians come in who are poor, who are disenfranchised, who are marginalized, who are being treated like garbage out in the culture. And they come in to the, the doors of the community and they're being treated in just the same way. And Paul says, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Shall I commend you in this? He says, no. The common meal around the table, this is a place where there should be enough for all. This should be a meal where there is space for everyone, where all are valued and all are honored. Jesus came into this world to destroy that whole social status game. He came into the world to knock the social ladder on its side and to lift everyone up together equally in himself. And he says, when you share in the Lord's Supper, this is the message that should be communicated through your practice, but you are telling a different story. Are you seeing why this is such a disaster in the city of Corinth? Does this make sense? So this is the problem. Now, it's ironic because even though they named what they were doing, this dinner party, they called it the Lord's Supper. Maybe they even broke bread. Maybe even the elite were speaking, you know, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And, you know, sharing it around with all their little 12 friends while the 30 or 40 are out in the atrium hungry. Jesus, or Paul says, this is not the Lord's Supper. Jesus would never host a party like this. In fact, if Jesus was invited to this party, do you know where he would be? He wouldn't be in the, he wouldn't be in the triclinium hanging out in the fancy dining room. Jesus would be out in the atrium with the day laborers and the migrant workers and the hungry. Because when God became flesh and dwelt among us, this is the kind of flesh he took on, the poor and the powerless and ultimately the despised and the crucified. And so in light of this problem, Paul issues a warning. And look what he says in verse 27. He says, oh, uh, yeah, I'll go to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats the bread and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So in light of their practices, where the problems within the broader Corinthian culture were surfacing within the practices within the church, where the rich were being honored and fed and doted upon, and the poor were being left out in the atrium and neglected, Paul says, let me issue a warning. Those who eat and drink in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand what he's talking about here. Unfortunately, these words have been taken out of context. They've been seriously misinterpreted to mean something to the extent of, in order to come and share in this practice, you need to first become worthy. Are you worthy enough? Are you worthy are you worthy? No. Sorry, that was, that was, didn't really work. No. It didn't work, did it, Audrey? <laughs> but the idea for many is, is that you need to be worthy to partake in this because this is sacred, special stuff. If you come, you've got to be worthy enough and holy enough. That's not what Paul is talking about in our text. What Paul is talking about is partaking week by week in the Lord's Supper while at the same time neglecting the needs of the poor. He's talking about coming and feeding yourself with the gifts and the gracious mercy of God in Jesus Christ, and yet not being a person who goes out and shares that same generosity and mercy with others who are in need. And he says, if you persist in doing that, you can find yourself coming underneath the discipline of the Lord. And he talks here about getting sick and some dying. Now, of course, Paul is not saying here that every time you are sick and every time somebody dies, it's because they're being disciplined by God. He's not saying that that happens all the time. He's not even saying that that happens most of the time. But he is saying that there are times in our lives where we find ourselves wandering far from the path of love and mercy and justice, and we are on this path of self-indulgence and self-centeredness and arrogance and ignoring the needs of all around us. And as an act of love, God reaches out and he afflicts us. And he actually disciplines us. But the point of the discipline is to turn us back to himself. And that's why he says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Self-centeredness, all of the status games that the Corinthians were playing had come underneath the condemnation of God. 
God says this world and its system that is marked out by the haves and the have-nots and all of these games of, of arrogance and pride and despising these people, Paul says all of that has come underneath the judgment of God in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. God has said no to this old ways of being in this world and he has said yes to the way of self-giving love, sacrificial love, self-giving. This is what God affirms in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God is at work in our lives to turn us away from stuff that takes us far from him. And isn't it true for many of you that the best thing that ever happened to you was the problems, was the pain, was the suffering that came into your life that finally turned you away from your self-centeredness? Anybody in the house bear that testimony? Yes, I bear witness to the same. So he warns us, he says, God will act against them for their self-centeredness. But then Paul actually desires something better. He doesn't want them to get sick. He doesn't want them to experience the discipline of God in their life. Instead, the alternative to to the discipline of God is to exercise self-examination and self-discipline. And here he finally turns us to the remedy. And look at what he says. He proposes two concrete ways of acting when we come to the Lord's Supper. He says, number one, verse 28, let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. So the first thing he advocates is self-examination and a work of really discerning the body. Now, when he talks here about discerning the body, I think he's speaking of it on two levels. I think it's a double entendre. On one level, I think what he's talking about is discerning the body of Christ. He's saying, look, we are surrounded by a community of people. We are one part in a whole. And God has called each part to take concern for the whole, to have an obligation to the whole. I remember back when uh, I was living in Long Beach, I took a trip to a very impoverished country in Africa called Burkina Faso. And I remember I went there uh, with my senior pastor and his son, who was a teenager at the time. And I remember when we got back, his son came up to me and he said this. He said, you know, he goes, he said, people, people keep coming up to me and they say, oh, I'm so glad that you went to Burkina Faso. I'm so glad you went to Africa. Because now that you've gone there, you know how much you have to be thankful for. And he said to me, he said, you know, he goes, I don't just feel gratitude. I feel that. I feel gratitude for what I have. But he says, I also feel a great debt, a great obligation for what I've seen. I don't just look at human need and say, well, thank you, Lord, that I'm not that needy. Instead, you look at human need and you say, God, what have you called me to do to move out and to address these needs? This table is often called the Eucharist. It's, it's the table, the, the word Eucharist in Greek is the word thanksgiving. It's the table where we come and we share in these great gifts and we respond with gratitude. We say, thank you, God, that you have not left me on my own. But it's also a table where we see that as Christ's body was broken 
and he was poured out for us. So we come to this table and we are reminded that we have a similar vocation in this world to be broken and poured out for the needs of others. Are you seeing there's a communal, a social dimension to this table? And so he calls us to self-examination, to discernment of the body of Christ, but not just the body of Christ, meaning the family of God, but deeper than that, the body of Christ that was broken so that the family of God might be healed and restored and renewed. That God himself, who was at the very way above, the very top rung on the social status ladder, descended from that ladder all the way into the depths of human brokenness and depravity and all the way to the point of a crucified slave so that he might lift all of humanity with him in his resurrection. And so the remedy first is to discern the body of Christ, both his physical body as well as his community that he's gathering together. But secondly, he calls them to not just discern and self-examine, but he calls them to move out in action. Look what he says in verse 33. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now, at first, it looks like he's just telling them to use good manners. You know, my family, we always, like the broader Swanson clan, we always eat at precisely 5 o'clock. And if anybody is there late, we just start eating anyway. My wife is shaking her head. We remember there was a time, Christmas, it was like the year after we got married, Alicia and I had been tired because, I don't know, traveling or whatever. We had gone down to take a little rest in uh, one of the bedrooms, and it was like 5.03, and we kind of woke up, and we're like, oh, oh, there's a few minutes, you know. Christmas dinner was going to be at 5, and it was in the living, it was in the dining room of the house we were staying in, and we went out there, and the family was already eating Christmas dinner. Nobody even woke us up. Nobody bothered to knock and tell us, did they? That was like, yeah. Mom and dad, if you're listening. (laughs) We need therapy. (laughs) You need therapy too. But if you'll notice where it says wait for, in some of your Bibles, there's a little uh, footnote that points you down to the bottom. And it, it, one of the translations of that phrase, wait for, can also be share with. And I think this is actually the sense of what Paul is saying. I think Paul is saying, when you come together as a church, he's telling the haves to share with those who have not. And if anyone is hungry, if you really need to throw a big party and eat with all your buddies, well, then eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about other things, I will give directions when I come. Don't you wish you would have known what those other things were that he was going to give directions about? What is it, Paul? What else were you going to talk to him about? But he says, look, coming to the Lord's Supper and receiving from Christ reminds us not only that we are creatures that are always in need of the gifts of God to sustain and nourish our own life and our soul in this world. But we also have an obligation to go out and to be a conduit and an agent of his grace and love, sharing what we have with those in our world. So there it is. The problem, the warning, the remedy. Now let's just stand back and Let me just uh, make just one simple observation from this. 
We talked last week about the need for us when we come to the table to look around us and to remember if there is anybody in this room that you might have a falling out with, somebody who you've been feeling a little bit frustrated and annoyed by, and somebody who you just don't really like that much, could you just point to them right now? Just look around. <laughs> and, and we said, look, call those people to mind. And as you, as you come forward and receive this gift and you watch this whole stream of people come forward, let it be a way of telling you, look, we are all beggars in need of bread. And we come to this table alongside of other needy, broken people, and so have mercy and grace on them, extend forgiveness and love to them. We talked about that last week, about the need when we come to the table to work for reconciliation, where there have been relationships where we've had a falling out with each other here. But here what I want to draw your attention to is the need not only to come to this table and let it be a space for reconciliation, But this table should be a space where we are formed into a more generous people. Those who are always receiving are always giving. Richard Hayes puts it like this. Now listen to this. I'm going to read a lengthy quote, but there's payoff at the end. So can you stand in there for a quote? Uh, That wasn't a rhetorical question. (laughs) Are you down for a long quote? Yes. All right. Yes, I thought you would be. All right, so here it is. He basically says, look, those who have must share with those who have nothing. He says, Paul is thinking about this problem on the level of the local congregation. But the same logic applies on a much larger scale. As long as some Christians go hungry, the Lord's Supper should call the prosperous to share their bread with those in need. This is a challenging word for Christians who live in the affluent societies of North America and Europe. We have tended to separate into different congregations distinguished by social class and have made the Lord's Supper into a tidy rite disconnected from real eating and drinking. Consequently, it is hard for many economically comfortable Christians to envision a connection between the Lord's table and the needs of the poor. The Eucharist is not just a private act of piety focused on receiving individual forgiveness, but it is a coming together of the Lord's people at a common meal. An important aspect of the Lord's Supper is discerning the body, perceiving the connection between ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we rightly discern the body, we will symbolize our oneness in Christ by sharing what God has given us to eat and drink. Or as Paul would later say to to the Corinthian church, it seems like they got it. The gospel began to go down into this community and work itself out. And when Paul needed to raise funds in order to help feed starving Christians in Jerusalem, one of the places where he received a massive gift was from the the church in Corinth. And he said this, you know our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. Christ divested and gave everything, even to the point of a broken body and shed blood on a tree for our sins. And even as Christ has given himself fully for us, 
we are invited to go out and be generous and give to others. And so even this morning as we come to this table, you know, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come forward, and I would just ask you, even in this space and time, are there any people who are starving in this world that your money travels to? Do you share your bread with any in need? I'm not asking whether or not you give money to the guy who's standing on the side of the road with a sign in his hand. Sometimes that's maybe not the best thing to do for that person. Sometimes they're just looking for drug money. But I'm asking, are you invested in organizations like the Union Rescue Mission that are actually providing shelter and care and housing and training and medical care for those who are, who are at the very ends of the spectrum when it comes to kind of like the social status and all of that? There are organizations like Compassion International that are doing beautiful work among children to give them clothing and to feed them and to give them education and support so that as they grow up, they can move on the rung of development so that they can begin to feed themselves. And so even as we come to this table and you and I come with open hands ready to receive from the grace and mercy of God, even these tangible elements that we ingest that actually go in and nourish our bodies, we have to ask the question, are we turning out to those around us and are we sharing what we have to nourish the bodies of others? This time I want to invite our band to come up. And I'm going to close this morning by reading the paragraph that I skipped over, which is the instructions that Jesus gave to us when he instituted this practice. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, one of these days, in my, in my wildest dreams and imagination, I see us sharing together in the Lord's Supper and no longer just having this little piddly bit of cracker and a little thimble of juice, but actually sharing together in a feast with more bread than you could imagine, than you could ever eat, and the best bread you could ever have. I know it's unleavened, you know, in the Gospels, but let's put leaven, let's put gluten and a lot of it in that bread. We have, unle- we have gluten-free bread up here. It doesn't taste very good. And have lots of wine and drink and just a great time that really reflects the abundance of God that nourishes and sustains us every day of our lives. And may that abundance be all that we need. May that generosity be all that we need to move us out to share what we have with others. And let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we come with gratitude, we come with thanksgiving because of your radical generosity. 
because you have invited us to yourself and you have given yourself fully and unreservedly to us in Jesus. This morning afresh, we receive your love and we receive these tokens also as a commitment to be your people in this world, broken open and poured out for the healing of others. God, strengthen us by your spirit that we might be your people in this world. We ask this in Christ's name.